Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today is the renowned journalist Stephen Call. He is a staff writer at The New Yorker, dean of the Columbia School of Journalism, and former president of the New America Foundation think tank. In 2005, he won the Pulitzer for his book Ghost Wars, which examines the secret history of the CIA in Afghanistan from the Soviet invasion to right before the September 11th attacks. Now, if you've read Ghost Wars, you know. It is the foundational text that provides the history and context for understanding America's involvement in Afghanistan in the era leading up to the September 11th attacks. When it was published, it took DC by storm and quickly became a canonical text for the national security community, a Bible of sorts. Needless to say, official Washington and beyond was eagerly anticipating his sequel to Ghost Wars, which was published just a few weeks ago. The book, titled Directorate S, The CIA and America's Secret Wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan, picks up where Ghost Wars leaves off, spanning from the September 11th attacks to the first few months of the Trump administration. We kick off with an extended discussion of these two books and of what went so wrong for the United States in Afghanistan. We then discuss his own life and career as a journalist, including how an accident of assignment led him to South Asia at a very critical time. This is a great conversation with someone who has helped me understand the world a bit better, and I suspect you will will enjoy this episode. I will, of course, link to Ghost Wars and Director at S on GlobalDispatchesPodcast.com. And as always, you can use the contact button on GlobalDispatchesPodcast.com to get in touch with me. Finally, I know I make this this pitch frequently, but I would so appreciate it if you could share this podcast with your friends on social media and beyond. And if you are so moved, leave a review of the podcast on iTunes. And if you do leave a review, I will mail you one of my globaldispatchespodcast.com stickers. Thank you all in advance. And now here is my conversation with journalist Stephen Call. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
I'll tell you kind of, a, I think, what is a funny personal anecdote that I think illustrates the impact that Ghost Wars had on, on the policy community in, in D.C. at the time. So at the time in 2004, I was actually a research assistant to, to Peter Bergen at the New America Foundation. This is before your time there. And, you know, I remember he called me into his office and he had maybe a, a review copy of, of Ghost Story. And, and he's like, Mark, you have to read this. And of course I, I did. I, I devoured it. And then a couple of weeks later, I was on uh, an Amtrak, you know, somewhere between New York and DC. And I sat down and this, you know, young woman about my age next to me uh, had a copy of, of Ghost Wars. And, and not only was she reading it, but she was taking these like very detailed notes with highlighters and uh, a very sort of complex note taking system. And I asked her, you know, what she was doing. And it, it turned out she was uh, a researcher at the National Security Archives and she was combing the book for things that she could then make a Freedom of Information Act request uh, about. <laughs> And I mean, just, just that sort of happenstance encounter just suggests to me the profound impact that that book had on the entire policy debate in D.C. at the time. And I'm sort of curious to learn from you, looking back, how you measure the impact of, of a book like that, not in terms of sales or, or reviews, or, but in terms of, of like a policy impact. Well, it's funny because when I was working on the book, um, I really didn't expect it to have that kind of an impact in the United States. I felt as if I was, you know, grappling toward my goal as I was researching and writing the book and, and that I had some original material that I thought was important. But I was um, really trying to write a book that would provide readers in the United States, but also in the region, Pakistan and Afghanistan, with a very thorough and reliable history of how we had gotten to 9-11, at least through the prism of the Afghan war. And I had made these choices as a writer while I was working on it um, to, to go ahead and favor density and detail. Yes, I tried to write it so that it would be readable, but I, I used to joke to my friends before it was published I, that I didn't think there was going to be much of an appetite for it in the United States, but it was going to be big in Pakistan, like a you know rock band that's big in Japan. <laughs> and so I was I was genuinely um, surprised by the the kind of reaction uh, among American readers. Um, and what I came to understand, um, not only in the policy community, but also in um, in journalism and and among the many tens of thousands of Americans who went to Afghanistan in the years after the book was published um, to serve in the military or in some other capacity, um, that there was a that the very density that I had sort of worried about um, as I was putting it together was where a lot of the value uh, lay, and I, I ended up. So you ask, you know, how do you measure the impact? It's I've met so many readers of the book who feel so strongly about it in one way or another, just as a resource or as, as something that made an impact on them individually. And it's often is accompanied by a story about where they were, what they were doing, what their job was when they read it, and, and why it was uh, helpful to them in one way or another. And and the final version of this, often, especially now that I've been out talking about Director at S, uh, people will come to a talk and bring their copy of Ghost Wars to be signed alongside the the new book. And it's often like 
full of marginalia notes and post-it notes. <laughs> there you and, go. That, that's, a, that's a sign of someone who's really taken it well, seriously. Well, maybe, maybe that, that uh, woman from the National Security Archives, you should have seen her book. It was, it was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a highlighter. It was a whole very elaborate system. Now I know why the National Security Archives does such a good job with that. Yes. Yeah, um, so yeah, so basically, you, you wrote what I think is regarded as like a canon. It's, it's a canonical you know, piece of, of, of foreign policy literature. Uh, I guess what compelled you then to want to write a, a follow-up to that? Well, I had been thinking about whether I should uh, for a number of years. Um, I, this is my life's work. Afghanistan, Pakistan is at the heart of what my career has brought me to by accident of assignment originally, but then increasingly through um, my own choice and fascination with the subject matter. And um, I thought after uh, Ghost Wars found its audience that there might be an opportunity as the war uh, escalated in Afghanistan um, to return to that subject matter. And so I initially started writing about the war for The New Yorker, went to Pakistan and Afghanistan regularly. Um, but I always hesitated. I did two other books after Ghost Wars before I returned to the subject matter. And partly I had interest in these other subjects, but partly it was that I couldn't figure out how a second volume could work on the same terms as the first volume. I think from an author's perspective, it's kind of a strange act to write a sequel to a work of history, that journalistic history, that wasn't intended to be a multi-volume history. I have friends who have written three-part histories of one thing or another, and I can imagine setting out to do something like that over the course of a decade. But to to add a second volume to um, a, a distinctive book that I also knew had so many passionate readers, I thought um, that... I had to solve a number of problems. One was I couldn't really change the tones or the scope of the second volume in a way that would cause it to not be recognized as an, as an actual extension of, of Ghost Wars. It really had to adopt the same narrative strategies, reporting strategies, research strategies, tonal strategies, um, storytelling strategies as the first volume. And then it had to somehow stay within the same geography as the first volume, which was kind of a triangle um, of Washington, Islamabad, Kabul. And and then it had to account for the fact that this was a very different kind of history. There was certainly an underground history that I could try to excavate, but there was also um, a very explicit uh, conventional war that the United States had participated in and NATO. I did want to write a history of that war. Um, I wanted to write something else about the U.S. struggle um, with this uh, experience after September 11th. And uh, so gradually, I would say, as the years passed, and as the Obama administration escalated the war and also named a date for the U.S. Uh, withdrawal, I thought, finally, uh, after accumulating a lot of material that I wasn't sure wanted to be in a book. Finally, then I, I could see, um, you know, I could see how I could write something that would be truly an extension of the first volume. So I, I, I 
asked you uh, about how you measure impact, in part because I, I was struck by uh, a line, the first line in Andrew Basavich's review of your book, a glowing re- review of your book, I should say, but one uh, in which he says that, you know, I'm going to quote here, Steve Cole has written a book of surpassing excellence that is almost certainly destined for relevance, um, which, you know, seems to suggest that the policy failures that you um, so carefully identify in the book are not ones that policymakers will, will necessarily take heed. Well, I, I would take issue with that um, cynicism. I, I think um, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that um, you, when you publish um, histories of this kind, you invite a discussion uh, about the repetition of failure that may uh, at least, um, you know, inform um, a willingness to to try to break the pattern. And it's absolutely true that the the problems um, of U.S. policy in the Afghan war uh, are deeply embedded. They appear to be intractable. They appear to be rooted in um, a kind of mechanistic aspect of American military and foreign policy. Once it gets going down a certain track, it's very hard to to um, turn. But I have found in my conversations in Washington since the book was published, and you know, it's had a, uh, a gratifying reception in the same policy circles that were passionate about ghost wars. And I have, you know, I've had conversations with serving policymakers uh, since the book came out, and they're searching for something fresh, something new, some way to avoid the repetitive contradictions of American action and policy in the war. And uh, you can see one consequence of um, this openness to trying to learn the lessons of uh, the last 15, 18 years is um, a willingness, even in the Trump administration, to engage with um, the possibility of negotiations with the Taliban and political strategies to complement military strategies. And um, so I hope that the record of why previous attempts to resolve the war politically, or at least reduce its violence through negotiations that complement military action, um, why the record of failure, I mean, I, I hope that the record of failure that the book provides um, will inform uh, the efforts that are clearly underway now. And I, and I, so I don't think it's futile in that respect. Um, sort of speaking of, of this kind of record of, of, of failure of policy, could you, or, or is there perhaps like an original sin? Is, the, is there like a single policy error from which everything else flowed since the, the U.S. invasion? No, I don't think there's a single point of failure from which everything else flowed, but I think the book describes, um, if you were to, you know, I'm not a big believer in counterfactual history because I don't think the world is organized that way, but it's inevitable that you ask the question in hindsight, with the benefit of hindsight, what was the best opportunity to do better anyway, maybe not to uh, turn uh, the region into a land of milk and honey, but to to have done better, to have avoided some of the worst of what has happened um, as the war has evolved into a violent, grinding stalemate, and as Afghans, above all, have suffered from Pakistan's interference in the war, which has gone unchecked and so forth. 
if you ask when was the best opportunity, I think the book's second section, which is called Losing the Peace, really describes that. And the failure to consolidate the the victory over the Taliban uh, after June 2002 uh, over the next four or five years really looks tragic in hindsight. And there were, say, three or four factors as to why um, the U.S. and its NATO partners uh, failed to consolidate that peace. Um, one was an ideolo- ideological view in the Bush administration uh, that eschewed nation building, um, very strongly held by Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, uh, but also something that President Bush had campaigned on. Uh, so an unwillingness, an almost reflexive unwillingness to invest in a country that was absolutely shattered. And remember, Afghanistan in January 2002 ranked at the very bottom of the world development tables, uh, down with Somalia and Central African Republic, Chad. And it would have required substantial investment. Um, We made very small ones. Secondly, uh, part of the reason there was no investment in Afghanistan was that the Bush administration rather quickly determined to go to war in Iraq. And uh, the planning began that summer, uh, and it was one of the reasons that the Pentagon did not resource significant security efforts in Afghanistan. Uh, not only did we not resource international security efforts, um, we didn't build up the Afghan security forces as a substitute for, for our own in any meaningful way. It was really it was a pathetic uh, program. Then uh, there, was, there was hubris to add on top of that, which involved essentially having no post-war political plan for Afghanistan that accounted for the defeated Taliban. Uh, The bond process was a very successful uh, diplomatic process, and it was followed by political successes in Afghanistan, a successful presidential election, a successful parliamentary election. Um, But U.S. policy didn't learn the lessons of past U.S. victories, for example, in Germany and Japan, where the, the framework was based on an understanding that um, after you defeat an enemy force, yes, you can hold leaders accountable, you can try war criminals or hold establish truth and reconciliation commissions, but you can't hold every foot soldier, every lieutenant and sergeant responsible for participating in the in the enemy force, and that's what we did. We we every Taliban. Uh, you know, laborer and volunteer was a candidate to be shipped off to Guantanamo. We shipped hundreds off, and and many others were imprisoned in Afghanistan. So uh, it was a failure of eyesight about the future. We made the same mistake in Iraq, even more inexplicably, when we dissolved the Ba'ath Party and the, mm-hmm. and the Iraqi army. So, um, so those were the factors. So, so I guess looking at, at sort of the the Trump administration, have you sort of noticed any? discernible or important changes in how the Trump administration's approaching Pakistan that differs in any fundamental way from how, you know, the Obama or Bush administration uh, approached Pakistan uh, vis-a-vis, you know, its support for, for the Taliban and its sort of double dealing in the region. I think there are moderate announced changes of significance, but not decisive departures from past policy. And my sense uh, from talking to policymakers is that they're still, they're wrestling, they're they're struggling with the very same problems that thwarted the 
late Bush administration when they finally came to terms with the problem of Pakistan and and certainly thwarted the Obama administration across eight years. So the moderate departures are that the Trump administration has announced suspensions of aid to Pakistan. Um, These involve a a kind of an effort to um, pressure the Pakistani army leadership to do more to either force the Taliban into serious uh, peace talks um, in Afghanistan or uh, to arrest and detain uh, leaders operating from Pakistani soil and to tear down their infrastructure there. And where the where the problem remains the same, which I think is in the majority of the kind of policy puzzle uh, toward Pakistan, is that the Trump administration, despite these kind of tweets and aid suspensions, um, recognizes Pakistan's importance to any st- stable outcome in Afghanistan and and is groping for a successful negotiating strategy that will draw the Pakistanis in uh, to a constructive role that is not so overreaching as to unbalance the possibility of a of a political settlement or at least a reduction significant reduction in violence um, and the problems they're wrestling with you, you know Pakistan army's actual relationship with the Taliban how much leverage do they have why are they reluctant to use it um, what is the role of China in this equation important ally and and in many ways enabler of Pakistani policy how do you bring China into um, a constructive role? All of those are terribly familiar problems uh, going back uh, really into the Obama years. Um, so I'd love to switch gears now and learn a little more about you and your background. You know, earlier you said that it was by accident of assignment that you uh, first started covering this region. So I'd love to sort of trace the moments that that led to that uh, assignment. And I think my, my listeners will be interested to, to learn as well. I know that many of them have probably read you for years as, as I have. So um, let's, let's, I guess, start where it all began. Where, where were you born? Uh, Washington, D.C. I'm a creature of D.C. in the suburbs. I okay. went to Montgomery County Public High Schools and then fled Rockville, Maryland, uh, tried to go as far away from Washington as I could at 17, like a lot of 17-year-olds. And uh, I had never been west of Chicago, but I went to college in Los Angeles uh, to a small school, Occidental College, that I uh-huh. picked out of a catalog. Um, and I uh, was there actually a couple years ahead of President well, Obama I was going to say you're 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 yeah. one of you're one of two notable uh, alums of Occidental. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so, well, he actually graduated from Columbia, so he doesn't actually. He's he was at Oxy for two years and then transferred to Columbia. So, what um, what did your? I mean, growing up, like, were your parents in journalism and in the foreign policy world at all? Or were they part of like the official Washington? Uh, no, I mean, yes and no. My father was uh, a, a, an attorney in private practice who practiced at the Federal Communications Commission representing television networks and radio networks around a licensing regime that's now largely disappeared. And my, my mother was a homemaker. And then after my parents divorced, she uh, went to seminary and became a um, Protestant minister in the Washington suburbs. She had her own church for a couple of um, your UCC kind of um, leftist Protestant church, um, and uh, she became sort of a social activist, I suppose you would say, toward the end of her career, and uh, a very uh, wonderful 
uh, family upbringing, notwithstanding the divorce, both very talented uh, parents and very, very encouraging. So I, um, yeah, I went off to college uh, and studied English and history, but all along, really from third grade, I've been working on school newspapers and, and been around journalism as a possibility. I wanted to write and read. And when well, I came can, out can of college, ask, what, was, what was the first story you broke in elementary school? Uh, I, um, was in third grade when the Montgomery, I think you can fact check this, that I would have been in third grade, but the <laughs> Montgomery County teachers went on strike and they were picketing in front of my elementary school in Silver Spring. And I lived half a block from the school and I was shocked to see my teachers out there walking up and down with signs. I still remember what the sign said, we care, do you and I went out and I wrote a little kind of mimeographed newspaper about it. I don't know what motivated me to do this. I can't remember who else might have been involved in it. But I wrote a story that basically described the strike and I tried to distribute it. And the school suppressed it, <laughs> like they censored it. And that got my attention, I think. Um, so I was always, yeah. So from then on, I was in and out of school papers in high school as well and mm -hmm. in college and um and when I end alternative weeklies in the Pasadena, California area near the college, mm -hmm. I was writing for them. Um, and, and those so, are, those yeah, are great. Got, Aside yeah. from like the third grade mimeographs, the, the alt weeklies are, are great entry points for, for people into journalism as well, typically. Yeah, they certainly were in, in my day. And these, there's some survivors out there today, but um, it's uh, like all things printed on paper. It's a more challenging business than it used to be. But yeah, they really were very helpful to me as I got started in Los Angeles. The first two or three years after college, I was just scrapping around and I wrote for the LA Weekly and the LA Reader. And uh, I had a day job at a magazine that um, called Music Connection that was um, for aspiring rock and country musicians moving to Los Angeles to make it big in the music business. And uh I was the notional news editor, although a lot of what I did was just type free classifieds for the for the magazine. And uh, anyway, are there, are there any break. stories from from that those early days that that um, kind of stick out to you that resonate today? Well, it was very much an atmosphere. It was a small uh, magazine owned by a couple of guys who had somehow stumbled into this idea and made a success of it. And uh, the newsroom was very loose and. Uh, my boss had come out from Nashville and he was a country songwriter on the side and it felt very much like a college newsroom. It was a great place to, to work for. It was almost like a sitcom. Um, we used to go out and cover bands that were more or less auditioning in nightclubs around LA and we would cover who was getting signed and Motley Crue came into the office before they wow. were big ones. We met them as they were looking for a new drummer. Um, it was a strange thing, but I, I wrote an investigative series about how you get new songs on the radio, a kind of updated version of the payola story involving how you use consultants and skirt the restrictions and so forth. And it got picked up by a group at public television in LA that was called Community Information Project. And they were an investigative reporting group that worked for 60 Minutes in 2020 and tried to develop original stories for them. Hmm. And so I met them because they were thinking about maybe they could convert my work into one of their projects. And then they hired me as a writer uh, in their group because they were mostly investigative reporters who worked on television stories that require a certain amount of visuals and certain kinds of characters to work. 
And they had all this material that didn't fit for TV, but was great for magazines or other print investigative reporting. And so they hired me as their writer. And I was able to leverage these files into a staff position on a big, serious magazine called California Magazine. It was then owned by Texas Monthly. And I still worked for the investigative reporting group, but I I was also working for the magazine. And... um. So then I, I had some, some early luck. I mean, I ended up with cover stories at the magazine and an agent called and asked if I wanted to write a book. And, and then I moved back to Washington and literally bumped into an old editor of mine from California on the street in Washington. And she said, oh, I didn't know you were here. I said, I didn't know you were here. I'm working. She said, I'm working at the Washington Post. You should come work there. I said, well, is it as easy as that? <laughs> she said, yeah, I'll, I'll, show, I'll show your clips around. And uh, so I got hired as a feature editor at the Post about five years out of college, and uh, that's how I started. The accident of history part is, I'd written a book before I came to the Post, and I got another book offer after I started at the Post. What, what, what was that? What was that first back. book? What was that? That first book? It was a. It was about um, the antitrust lawsuit that broke up the phone company. Hmm. Um, it was called the Deal of the Century, and it was a kind of a, a narrative journalistic history of how that had happened. Um, I had ended up doing these kind of financial investigative stories at the magazine. And because my father was an FCC lawyer, I sort of knew how it worked and kind of what the subject was. And so that was, you know, it was kind of a strange, but it was, it was, you know, it got a nice review in the New York times and, and, um, and my publisher was happy and I got a second advance for a book about, um, this kind of scandalous bankruptcy of a big oil company over a failed merger. And I did that book. And by now, um, and I, so I'd left the post to do the book and I was finishing it and I'd kind of blown through my advance. By now I had a child and I thought, you know, a steady job at the Washington post might not be a bad idea. So, um, they had me back and sent me to New York as a financial kind of investigative and, and beat correspondent. And so at that point I settled into the post and I, I said, well, if I'm, I thought to myself, you know, if I'm really going to become a newspaper person, cause it's sort of a backwards way to enter the Washington post as a long form writer. Right. Yeah. Usually, Most usually people, it's you know, yeah, exactly the, the opposite direction. You kind of build yeah, up to the, the long form. Direction. Yeah, exactly. And, and so I more or less said to them, um, well, you know, gee, if I'm going to commit to a long career at the Washington Post, I'd really like to become a foreign correspondent. And they said, well, we're not ruling that out, but you've never written a news story in your life. And that is part of the life of a foreign correspondent. <laughs> and I said, okay, fair enough. Um, well, well, why did you want so, to be a foreign correspondent? It seems like you had a good thing going covering, um, you know, doing investigative pieces about domestic policy issues. Well, I'd grown up reading a lot of foreign correspondence in the Los Angeles Times. Um, and the books that had most influenced me were the books that the big works of narrative nonfiction, uh, David Halberstam's Bright Shining Lie, Neil Sheehan's, uh, I mean, sorry, Neil Sheehan's Bright Shining Lie, David Halberstam's Best and the Brightest, uh, Daniel Jurgen's The Prize, all these seminal works from the 70s. And they had been written by former foreign correspondents who had been on the ground in Vietnam in those, in the case of the Vietnam books. And then had come back and had sort of learned how to roll their ground truth understanding into bigger narratives. And I thought that seemed like a career I really 
would love to have as well. And I had also been influenced by the Los Angeles Times' heyday of just outstanding long-form foreign correspondence in those column ones. I read that every morning uh, in college and and knew all the bylines and all the bureaus. And so, yeah, I, and I and I had some wanderlust, wanted to get out and see the world and had, you know, so that's why. And uh, so can I, can I ask, I, I have to imagine that, that at some point you probably have met Neil Sheehan. I, I know Halberstam, of course, has passed away, but, but you had, had you met either of those guys before? Uh, I, I wrote a profile of Halberstam for the Post early in my time there mm. when he brought out a book called The Reckoning, which was about the car industry. Uh, it was a sort of a double story of, uh, I think, Ford and Nissan and about Japanese influence and the global auto industry. It was a very good book, actually. Um, and so, yeah, I, I met him uh, and interviewed him. I've, I've corresponded with Neil Sheehan. I, I wrote a review of his last book um, about the missile race in the 1950s for the New York Review of Books, and he, he wrote me a nice note afterwards. But I'm, I mean, his yeah, his book influenced a whole generation of American journalists. Well, that's why I was wondering if, like, you, you know, you had that sort of fanboy moment of of, of meeting him, which I imagine yeah, you, was an element of that was there. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so, definitely. so, so I'm sorry, I interrupt. So, so. I guess what was that that process then that that led to your finally sort of being sent abroad? Right. So this is the random thing. Yeah. Um, so the, in those days, getting on to the foreign staff was pretty competitive internally. There was a lot of young. There were a lot of young people in the newsroom, um, and um, a lot of people wanted to go abroad. And there were a lot of really talented senior people who were also abroad and not looking to come home anytime soon. And so there weren't that many slots. Uh, and one of the, so one of the ways they the foreign desk, which did the hiring internally, uh, and they really would pretty much only take internal candidates. So they didn't they didn't typically hire outside because they knew there was a big line of people on Metro um, or in my case, on the business desk who really wanted to get on to foreign. And so one of the ways they filtered uh, people out was they said you could not apply to only go to a particular place. You had to be willing to go anywhere in the world that they sent you. Um, and, you know, so you couldn't just apply for Paris. Mm. Now, there were people that they might might have special skills, language, or special interests that, that they would, you know, coax into a, a, a particular assignment. But um, in my case, I was in the, in the larger, undifferentiated pool that had to be willing to go anywhere. So I... Um, applied and, uh, and, you know, fortunately my, my first wife, uh, was very adventurous and anxious to go wherever we were going to go. We had by now a couple of kids. And so, um, we at first thought we were going to Poland. Then we thought we were going to South Africa and gradually as the process unfolded and I, and I did meet my demonstration test in New York around news and coverage, you know, solo coverage and so forth. And then, then they, they basically said, okay, you've, you've passed the audition. You're going to go, but we're not quite sure where. And, uh, so I, I get called down to Washington for what I thought was the last conversation around a, a rotation to South Africa. And in the middle of the conversation, I realized that the deputy foreign editor who was kind of interviewing me, thought that I already understood that I was going to India, which had never been mentioned. <laughs> so, so I said, can I call my wife? You know, how do you feel about New Delhi? 
So, um, and what year was that? Yeah, so off we went to New Delhi. That was 1989. Yeah, I guess it was in the fall of 1988 or maybe the winter of 1989 that they said you're going next summer. So I had a little bit of time to take, you know, night language classes and start reading, but it was, uh, you know, zoom off we went. Well, well, what were some of the early stories that you were covering the issues that you were reporting on? Well, I was responsible the Afghan war, um, significantly, but I was responsible for, um, coverage of stories, news and, and features enterprise stories. We would say, um, in, um, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, those were the three most important countries, but also Sri Lanka, which was in the middle of a terrible civil war, uh, Nepal and Bangladesh. And so a lot of it was, uh, you were, you know, 12 hours, 10 and a half hours ahead of the desk. And in those days there were no cell phones. So it was all telex. And when they sent you out, they basically instructed you, you're going to have to take responsibility for which planes to jump on, which stories, which breaking news stories to travel to. And then on the enterprise coverage, you can correspond with your editor and try to set an agreed agenda about what stories you're working on. But there was a lot of breaking news. Um, and then there were, then there were all these small wars. And I, uh, I would say for the post, you know, Pakistan and Afghanistan were more important to the desk than India, uh, to a degree at, at that point, um, you know, the CIA, covert action program arming the Afghan Mujahideen against the Soviet occupation was still going on, even though the the main Soviet force had withdrawn just as I got there. And, um, and Pakistan was just a subject of really running interest because Benazir Bhutto had been restored uh, to a power. She'd been elected as prime minister after returning from exile. And it was the first civilian led government in you know, a, a generation uh, since the seventies, well, was, and was that, she was a glamorous figure. Was that um, time era the, the first time that you set foot in Pakistan? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, what yeah, was? No, I mean, the first. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, can you take me back to that to that moment? Well, I I mean, I had never been in the developing world before. I mean, I, I was, when I got off the plane the first couple of weeks, I was a little bit in shock. Like, okay, I know how to do journalism, but where am I? How do I work here? And so I just, you know, I, the desk understood that we were, a lot of us rookies were in this position and they said, look, try not to try not to put too much pressure on yourself the first six months and just do the things that you know how to do. So I started out, you know, working in India on, you know, big uh, scandals, financial scandals, and things that I knew how to, I knew, I knew the template for how to report out those stories for a Washington Post, um, you know, sort of standard. And I also had read so much foreign correspondence based in travel that I, I had some ideas about how to immerse myself by just traveling. And I, I, for example, I did a big story fairly early on where I persuaded a a trucker, an Indian trucker, to let me ride with him from Delhi to Calcutta to write about what it was like on the Grand Trunk Road to be a truck driver in India. And that, that story was an early confidence builder and also kind of got me underneath the surface of all the noise and craziness of street life in India. And then in Pakistan, it was a much more, uh, India was, you know, had more kind of surface noise. Um, I was surprised at how, um, 
you know, sort of calm Islamabad was and, and what a sort of closed bubble um, the capital was. And so that was more about beat reporting, trying to get inside what was really happening in U.S. policy in Pakistan. And the embassy was my target. And and I learned that that was also, okay, I can know how to practice uh, beat reporting about a hard target and develop sources by through repeat visits and dinners and so forth. And and then, you know, Peshawar and learning about the Afghan war, first trip to Kabul. So I was out there for three years and, you know, I ended up covering a lot of small wars, Kashmir, Sri Lanka, which was probably the most dangerous alongside Afghanistan. And I uh, really, I really liked um, the subject of Pakistan. I just thought it was, I mean, it was an absolutely fascinating time. Benazir Bhutto was deposed in a coup while I was there. Um, and, um, there were, and ISI was uh, the huge subject, uh, both for the U.S. Um, as it kind of lost control of the Afghan war as the Cold War ended to ISI. Well, that actually and, was, uh, was going to be my, yeah. my next question. Is like, what was your first encounter with the ISI, the, the Pakistani uh, intelligence services? Well, I think even before I got there, I understood um, that they had a role to play in the Afghan war as a partner of the CIA and that they were also um, a kind of corrosive or um, manipulative force inside Pakistani domestic politics. I knew this because, you know, the first time you talk to Benazir Bhutto, she'll say, talk about Pakistani intelligence services. The army had hung her father. She was alert to the role that they played in um, Pakistani domestic politics, um, often at her expense. She ended up firing the director general of ISI that she had inherited, and then she attributed that action to her removal from office. Whether she was, you know, correct about every conspiracy theory that she wove uh, is another matter, but she was directionally correct. And um, so I was just interested in all of that, and so were my editors. Um, and and I then toward the end, I tried to I did a, a big two part series that helped um, kind of frame the reporting that became Ghost Wars about how the CIA covert action program had worked uh, in partnership with ISI. Um, and I did some interviewing with ISI officers, including at least one brigadier extensively on the record. And. Um, and I went back to Washington and put together a kind of mini ghost wars about the 80s. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, that ran as a front page series in the Washington Post. And so, yeah, so that was by the time I left, I mean, I, you know, Kabul fell to the Mujahideen in April 1992. I was still correspondent in the region. Then I was in Kabul when that happened. The Civil War started. Well, you're, you're in Kabul when yeah, it when it fell. Yes. Uh, yeah, I got in on the last last plane basically before and, it fell and i mean like how did you experience that i mean were you, were you sort of hunkered down what was the what uh the first day when the mujahideen walked in and they were fairly peaceful um then the first night the civil war started i didn't i we i sort of understood at that point that there was going to be a contest for the city between the pashtun factions led by gulbadin hekmatyar and supported by isi and the and the northern, what became known as the Northern Alliance, um, dominated by Ahmad Shah Massoud, but including Dostum. And um, the very first day of the civil war um, in broke out in Kabul, and international journalists were there. It was at times quite violent. I ended up 
following a bunch of Massoud's commanders around, which was a good choice because they were um, on the winning side and also uh, very hospitable and reliable. Um, but it took, you know, a couple of journalists got killed. It was something new in terms of the level of like tanks and that mm-hmm. kind of gunfire. It wasn't, it wasn't such a small war, <laughs> at least that first uh, violent week when they threw, essentially they threw Hekmatyar out of the city and trying to be able to, you know, do the ground uh, combat correspondence, but also, you know, be able to see the big picture mm-hmm. of what was actually happening from day to day in the contest for the city was the, was the challenge. And it was a, you know, it was a world where, uh, as typically in these things, you know, reporters watch out for each other and, and you know, help each other. Um, so I, I have to let you go. We've but, reached three o'clock. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I have to let you go. Uh, is there anything else you, you might want to plug? I know you're, uh, anything else you're, you're working on that you might want to, to plug or give a, sh- a shout to? No, just director at S, I guess, is the main thing. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, well, Steve, thank you so much for your time. This was uh, a pleasure. Yes. Anyway, thank you for your All time. Right. I appreciate thank it. You. All right. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you so much to Steve for his time. This was a very interesting conversation. And yeah, like I said, Ghost Wars, it was just, it was a sensation. I mean, it still is. I suspect many of you probably have read it. Uh, If you have not, uh, do yourself a favor, pick up both books, spend a few weeks, and you will will learn uh, a whole lot about U.S. foreign policy, about counterterrorism, about Pakistan and Afghanistan and about so many other important forces that uh, have driven the foreign policy debate over the last several decades. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.